The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 54, 1-10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor... For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should not, should, should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That was awesome. Thank you, girls. That was, ladies, that was wonderful. I really uh, love, I love that we had three three people reading that passage because, um, as we're going to unpack it in a moment, there are three images in that passage that they kind of each took one of them. And so, helpful. Uh, Thank you for that. Okay, so we are in the fifth part of the sermon series in Isaiah. Uh, that is an Advent series. Now, we're in the third Sunday of Advent, but we had two weeks of kind of preamble uh, for this, and we're going to have one Sunday of postscript as well. Uh, but we are working through key passages in Isaiah in this series called A Weary World Rejoices. Just looking full on at, at, at the reality of, of the weariness that collectively we're all experiencing to one degree or another. And... Um, and so we move into this passage, and this passage is, is, uh, contains a lot of what we've been talking about already, of the Lord talking about his, his, his judgment and his wrath towards sin, and also his redemptive um, plan to rescue us from our sin and to deliver us. And so I'm excited for us to get into that. Before we do, I want to mention again, uh, giving. This is, we're in December right now. December is a crucial month uh, for churches all over the place. Uh, December is a month where many churches like ours and ours would be in this category. About, about 25% of giving comes during this month. And so, um, so our, our, uh, 
projections and our goals for giving uh, for December are much higher than, than the rest of the year. And uh, so we really want to encourage you uh, as you're looking at year-end giving uh, to, um, if this is your church home, to uh, prioritize the church in your year-end gifts. And if, if, you're, if it's not, but you're looking for a place to give, to consider giving to the work at Christ Presbyterian Church. When you do that, when you go on to Christ Pres. Uh, org slash give. It will give you the option to select uh, which congregation you're uh, giving as a part of. Um, if you're Cool Springs, make sure that you've selected that. If you've come over to Cool Springs from a different location, but this is the primary one, if you don't change that yourself, uh, it'll just stay on the, on the other location, which we're all for blessing the other locations, but if Cool Springs is your church home uh, and this is the congregation you're a part of, uh, just double check that. Um, okay, the same would go for anybody who's watching via live stream who used to be here and is at one of the other locations. Go ahead and make that. I just want to be fair. Uh, <laughs> all right, Bruce Springsteen has had a prolific year. He put out two records this year. Um, there were a number of years ago where, just being honest, uh, I didn't get it when it came to Bruce Springsteen. I listened, I grew up, he, he, was, he was really popular when I was at the age where I was just consuming music. And so Born in the USA, Glory Days, Hungry Heart, the, all that kind of era, Top 40 radio, was when I was getting my introduction to Bruce Springsteen. And, and I... I uh, I thought it was all right, but I didn't understand why people called him the boss, and I didn't understand why people said he's, he's, uh, he's one of America's top three greatest songwriters ever. Uh, the other two that would round that out would be Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. And, and so I, 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 I decided that I was going to spend three months listening to nothing but Bruce Springsteen. That was all I was going to listen to, to see if I could get it, and, and I got it. Uh, wow. But he had this song back in the 80s that was real poppy and real catchy, but the lyrics were just profound, uh, and that was the song that had these lines. Well, tonight, I'm going down to the well tonight, and I'm going to drink till I get my fill. And I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it, but I probably will just sitting back trying to recapture a little of the glory. Well, time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister, but boring stories of glory days. I love that song because that song is posing for us a pretty existential question, and that is this. Your glory days, are they behind you or are they ahead of you? Now, there are two ways to approach that question. The first is, what do you feel? <laughs> do you feel like your glory days are behind you, or do you feel like they're ahead of you? Are you an optimist? Or um, is it just a fact that your glory days are behind you, and, and it's just kind of pushing a boulder uphill for the rest of the, the journey that you're on? If you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the fact. The fact is, your glory days are ahead of you by like a million miles, right? Your glory days are ahead of you by a million miles. Today's passage in Isaiah uh, that was just read to us so beautifully uh, is a call to optimism. 
It's a call to hope. It's a call to optimism. It's a call to posture ourselves in this world as people who are preparing ourselves for unprecedented joy, to expect it, to sing because of it. Optimism can be hard to come by sometimes, right? It can be hard to come by, especially when we're going through times where there are challenges, obstacles, things that are uh, just kind of throwing a wrench in the works and there's no real end in sight. That's a world that we've been living in to various degrees right now. And we're going to live one of two ways in response to this. We're going to live believing that our glory days are in the past or believing that they lie ahead. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to make the case from this passage that our glory days lie ahead and that we have a theological obligation. So there's a call to action. We have a theological obligation to optimism. Um, and it's hard to, hard to come by these days. And so my prayer for us is that we would be honest, realists, not people with our heads stuck in the sand pretending like everything is hunky-dory and at the same time understanding that for profound theological reasons, for a follower of Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to optimism. And so what we're going to do to approach this passage is I'm going to unpack the text that we read very briefly, and then we are going to, the second thing we're going to do is we're going to dig into the imagery of this passage, which would have been um, obvious to every original hearer and reader of this passage that there are references in here to the lives of Abraham and Sarah, the patriarchs of the Jewish people, uh, and their story, which was a story of hopelessness turned into joy because God did something that seemed impossible. And then finally, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss why Christmas establishes a theological responsibility to be eternal optimists in light of God's grace. So, first, let's get into this passage. Uh, these verses, Isaiah 54, it comes immediately on the heels of one of the most soaring and piercing uh, passages in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 53, where we read about the suffering servant who would come. It's one of the most overt descriptions of the work and ministry of Jesus that you're gonna find in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. Uh, in fact, in two Sundays, I'm actually going to be in that passage, and I can't wait to dig into that more. Um, but we're on the heels of that, where we have this suffering servant who's going to take God's wrath toward our sin upon himself, and what he's going to do is he's going to reconcile us to the God who made us and the God that we've sinned against. And in that passage, we read about the Father and the Son acting as one on our behalf to restore us to peace. And then we come to this passage. We come to Isaiah 54. And in verse 10, there's a summary verse or a summary statement there where God's people are told to expect peace. To expect peace to reign in our hearts. He said, the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. The word shall and the word will are very different words, right? The word will is just describing what 
what is going to happen. The word shall has authority behind it. He's saying, my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And so we're to expect that what lies in wait for us is peace and is joy and is satisfaction. And so then out of that, we're to live lives of expectant hope in those things. And so we'll walk through the passage. It has three images. Uh, The first one is really an image of Abraham and Sarah. Everybody would have understood this when they read it. Um, After the exile, what he says in verses 1 to 3 is, after the exile, Israel has become like a barren old woman. And she longs for a future to flow from her, but she can't see how that's possible. That's the story of Sarah, right? And that's what this is. It's a callback to Israel's beginning. When God promised Abraham and Sarah that they'd have descendants and that those descendants would outnumber the stars. And the only problem was that Sarah was barren and she was unable to have kids and besides they were both too old to have children anyway. And God tells Israel, prepare for an impossible promise of redemption to be fulfilled. To start making room for the offspring that will populate the world. And then we come to the second image, which is an image of a broken marriage in verses four through eight. And it's a picture of the exile, and the, and the image goes like this. It's an image, I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna break it down quickly for you, but, but it's this, is that because of rebellious infidelity on the part of the wife, that would be Israel, seen from the shame of her youth, which is slavery in Egypt, to her later widowhood, which is the exile that they're in there. The husband, who's God in this image, has turned her out in anger and as a chastening. That's what we see in verse 8. He says this, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. That's a sober passage of scripture from God to his people. But God is restoring, the husband is restoring his wife to him and will have eternal compassion on her. That's the image of verses four through eight, that there's this broken marriage where there's infidelity and the one who has been sinned against is doing the restoring and the redeeming work with compassion in his heart to restore and to bring back not only into relationship but into the marriage. And then we come to this third image, verses 9 and 10, that's the image of of the flood, of, of Noah's flood. And so what happens here is to God, this exile has been like Noah's flood. He says, this is like the days of Noah to me. That's a pretty straightforward statement from the Lord about, here's an image. This is what this is like. And what was that? It was a disciplining, cleansing, hard work with sweeping consequences of loss and of sorrow. I was just in a conversation recently. When I was a, I was a seminary student when we were pregnant with our first son, and I say we pretty generously to myself, don't I? When Lisa was pregnant with our first, um, <laughs> first child, and, you know, 
so I'm a seminary student and I'm learning all kinds of things and I'm forming all kinds of opinions and, and people start to send us gifts that are kind of Noah's Ark themed um, for the nursery, you know? And I just kind of straighten up and I'm like, I will not decorate our nursery with Noah's Ark. I will not put a Noah's Ark mural on the wall unless that mural includes bloated corpses floating on the surface of the water. I've softened a little since then. I know how to have a good time now. Um, But man, I put my foot down and I felt like, it's my seminary education at work, Lisa. You're welcome. Um, But no, that's what this is, right? It's a a picture of, because I think about that with the flood and I think, The flood was devastating and heartbreaking. We hear the story of Noah and his family surviving, but with that is everybody else not surviving. And and it's and it's and it's brutal. And like the flood, God here is promising never to bring this sort of discipline on his people again. The covenant God made with Noah is symbolized by what? What is this what is the representative symbol of the covenant of Noah? It's the rainbow, right? And that image of the rainbow is actually a bow where if you were to notch an arrow in the string, the tip of the arrow would be pointing into heaven, not at the earth. God is saying that, that, that the way that if, I, that, that, that if, that if this covenant is, is, is established in peace, that what's going to happen is the tip of the arrow is going to pierce the heart of heaven before it will pierce the heart of the earth. And, God, and that's what happens, right, in the gospel, And God is promising that he's establishing a covenant of peace. That's what he's saying here. Which the previous chapter said would be guaranteed through the atoning substitution of the suffering servant who would be Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to understand that what what he's saying here is he's saying, I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to restore you, but I'm also not ignoring my wrath towards sin and rebellion. He's putting it on his son in our place. So the peace that he's promising is actually coming through a means. It's coming through the means of Christ's work. And then he gives us directives for how to respond to that. He tells us, this is how you're supposed to feel. This is how you're supposed to receive that. And when you look at the directives in this passage, there are things like this. Things that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to sing, O barren one. We're supposed to rejoice. We're supposed to fear not. We're supposed to prepare for blessing. We're supposed to expect great things. We're supposed to risk optimism. Do these things come naturally for you? Or do you feel like Sarah, Abraham's barren wife, who after enduring so much, abandoned optimism and laughed at the idea that God could deliver on his word. If you're like Sarah, and I have seasons where I am very much like Sarah, God is saying to you, sing. Sing about the goodness of this. <coughs> I love the poetic way that God threads the Abraham and Sarah story through this passage. And so I want to focus on that story here just for a moment before getting into this call to optimism because I think it's really good for us to empathize with the position of Abraham and Sarah. Because this was a couple that God made a promise to that was an astonishing, hard-to-believe promise. 
and it was shrouded in glory that he took Abraham outside in a desert sky. He said, look up at the stars, count them if you can. Your descendants will outnumber those. But the issue was, they couldn't even manage to produce one single descendant. Not one single heir. And that put them in a position that many of us have been in. It's this. It's a position where I don't know if I can handle hoping right now because of the disappointment that could just land on me. And I don't know how much more I can bear. And so God promised Sarah, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son within a year. And Sarah, at this point, she's not young anymore, right? When Sarah was young, she was beautiful. She was a beautiful woman. Even at the age of 65, her beauty was so compelling that Abraham would lie to people and say she was his sister for fear that they would see her beauty and they would kill him so that they could take her as their wife. And so there are a number of occasions he lied about who he was to her and who she was to him. And the irony of this was not lost on Sarah. Imagine being her. Imagine being this woman where you know that when people look at you, they're taken by your beauty. They're taken by it. And she knows that on, on her, to, to see her from the outside, she appears alive with beauty, and yet she harbors this knowledge, and the knowledge that is in a place no one could see she was dead. And this was during a time when a wife's greatest honor was to produce heirs. And in this area where she most wanted to be alive, she was not and she couldn't do anything about it. And so she was barren, outwardly beautiful, inwardly hurting. And that is a great question to ask all of us. Where are you like that? Outwardly beautiful, inwardly, inwardly hurting. Because it wasn't just for her that her childbearing years were behind her. It was that they never happened. And everything that she tried to do to improve that situation only complicated her life more. And so she laughed at God when he insisted that she'd have a son within a year. Because what's she thinking? She's thinking, really, is this shell of an old woman with this wisp of a husband now going to succeed at what we failed at for over 50 years? You want me to risk that kind of optimism? And by this time next year, it hurts to risk that kind of hope. This is something I pray about for our congregation. I pray, Lord, help us to be people who don't, who, who, who will risk hope even when it feels like it, 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 it hurts to do that. That we wouldn't shut that part of our hearts off. God asked Sarah why she laughed. And she lied and she said, I didn't laugh. God said, yeah, you laughed. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't like a, a, a deliberate laugh, was it? As much as it was a reaction. 
It was a reaction. It, it, was, it was half laugh, half exhale, right? When it, when it came to bearing children, her story is, was, was one of just insult added to injury. And so when he said it again, and she's now old, and, and, and Abraham even older, what's she supposed to do but say, well, okay. And we're not unlike Sarah. We hear the glory of God's promises, some of which are really personal for us and are really fragile for us. And sometimes we feel like we're just on the outside looking in when our lives seem to be marked by this kind of lifelessness, this barrenness, this series of failed schemes. And we ask, could God really have anything for me? Or am I just kind of on the outside? And to this, and to Sarah, God says, I know what you're thinking. And he also knows why we're thinking it. He knows. He knows the frustration and the sorrow and the hurt and the failures and the things that we had so much hope in that didn't pan out or turn out the way. He knows. He knows why we feel it's a risk. And yet, we have a theological mandate to be optimists about the future and to rejoice in it. So let's land the plane with that. Our the theological obligation to optimism. Optimism and joy are indicators of a maturing faith. If you're a person who's walking around and you are um, a pessimist and you're dour about the future, there's some maturing that needs to happen in your faith because the story and the promises that we're given as followers of the Lord, it's just the greatest news ever, right? It's, it's the most amazing reality that awaits us. So optimism and joy are indicators of a maturing faith. They reveal that we can look at seemingly hopeless situations and not abandon hope because we, we understand that if God is in the mix, this isn't his first rodeo <laughs> when it comes to something that looks impossible to us and we can't figure out for the life of us how anything good could happen. And God is saying, I, I, deal, I deal in that all the time. We can look at every sad thing and know that every one of those things will one day be a distant memory or no memory at all. And so there's rich irony in this, in this passage, um, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, in the passage that we just read from Isaiah, because Isaac is born to Sarah and to Abraham to this barren woman and to this old man. And the irony in Isaiah is everybody who's hearing these words, everybody who's hearing these words, every exiled Israelite reading these words about hoping in God, every one of them exists because God kept his word to Abraham and to Sarah who could not see it and could not believe it. Sarah couldn't. Israel and Judah are, in fact, the living proof of God's covenant promise to Abraham and Sarah. 
a great nation did come. Descendants. They literally wouldn't exist if God hadn't performed a covenant-keeping miracle. The existence of the church today, us being in this room or watching on this live stream, the existence of a church existing in the world is also living proof that God has done this restoring work, restoring his people to himself in a covenant of everlasting peace. We're fruit of that promise. We're evidence of that promise. We are evidence of that promise that God made to Judah through the prophet Isaiah. Christ's atoning work has already happened. And the scripture refers to us, the church, as what? It's in the passage in Isaiah. We're a bride. We're a bride with a husband, right? Our maker is our husband. That's what the passage says in Isaiah. And so to us, we the living proof, God says, expect me to keep doing this sort of thing. Expect me to keep doing this sort of thing and rejoice over it and sing about it and talk about it and invite your friends and neighbors into it. See, optimism tests where our confidence lies. Are we going to live with a wartime mentality where what we're doing is we're protecting our interests, we're hoarding, we're preparing for the worst, or do we live like our glory days are ahead of us? Can we hear the call to rejoice and to see why joy is the only reasonable response to God's covenant of peace accomplished through the finished work of Christ? Joy is really the only reasonable response to what God has done for us in Christ. And so the call to live as theological optimists is essential. It's essential for us. It's essential for the proper mindset of welcoming in the outsider and modeling for them how to follow Jesus Christ, which is something that we're all called to do. And so we follow Christ. We follow Christ believing that all shall be well. Remember. Remember what God's promises are for his people. And they are this. I'm going to summarize. Let me summarize what God's promises are for his people. An eternity of perfect relationships with everyone. And, if that wasn't enough, uninterrupted peace with him in his presence forever. Perfect peace with everyone, uninterrupted peace with him in his presence forever. There's no such thing as an unkeepable promise with God. And so we are to prepare for this. We're to anticipate this. We're to sing of it. We're to hope in it. The worst case, the worst case for the follower of Jesus Christ is an eternity of unimaginable joy in his presence at perfect peace with God, your maker, forever. That's the worst case scenario that lies for us. Unimaginable joy in the presence of Christ and perfect peace with God forever. Is it any wonder that Scripture tells us the only reasonable response here is to rejoice and to welcome others into it because there is always hope. I pray that our celebration of Christmas would be marked by our worship of this
Jesus, who makes this so. Let me pray. Lord, I confess that I am <clears throat> I'm somebody who uh, is acquainted with, um, not only acquainted, but, but, but familiar and, and even skilled at pessimism, at discouragement, at um, uh, anxiety over uncertainty. And Lord, you know this part of me. And you know that, that for, for many of us, that, that's a good description of, of our hearts. And, and for others of us, it's, 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 a, it's just a different way of, of doing the same thing. And that, is, and that is disbelieving in your capacity, your ability, and your intent to make all things new. And yet, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, as we walk through these weeks of Advent where we remember Christ's first coming and we anticipate his second, we are not merely hoping in promises yet to be fulfilled, but we are hoping in promises that have been fulfilled, that the suffering servant has come and has atoned for our sins already. This is an historical event that has happened in the past. And so, Lord, would you be the lifter of our heads uh, and, and would, you, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? And we thank you, Lord, for all that you have done. We thank you that your story of interacting with your people is a story of you keeping seemingly impossible promises and nothing is too hard for you. Would you cause us to remember that and to find our joy in that and to sing of it to you and to sing of it in the ways that we welcome others into the story of your great compassion and love. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.